from Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read that David, when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it fell into a pit on the Sabbath, would not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is Rudy, and Rudy is Julie's and my German short hair pointer. And Rudy is, where did it go? There it is. Rudy is addicted to this. She's obsessed with this. You throw this ball in our backyard one time, she will retrieve it and bring it back to your feet. You throw it 10 times, she will retrieve it. You throw it 50 times, and she will bring the ball back over and over and over again. But there even comes a plops down in the grass, her tongue hanging out. She is not going to be retrieving until she has a, an opportunity to rest. Even Rudy must rest. And what's true of Rudy is true of you and true of me as well. We must rest. You can work hard and work hard and work hard, but at a certain point, you just have to take a break. You can try to stay up as long as you possibly can, but there is that moment at which your body will shut down and tell you you are going to rest and go to sleep. We even use this kind of imagery at the end of life. We think of people who've lived long lives and have worked hard perhaps for decades and decades, and at their funeral sometimes it is said, may he rest in peace. We see this on gravestones, don't we? R-I-P, rest in peace. Even that sense of rest is there at the end of life as well. Well, not only must we rest, did you know that rest is intended for our good and for our blessing as well? Intuitively, you just see it. Who here worked a long, hard work week? And on Friday evening, it was over, and you were going home, and the week one was here, and it was time to rest for Saturday and Sunday. It's meant for our joy and our pleasure. Sometimes I will look forward to vacation, and I'll start looking forward to it two months in advance because of the rest that we're going to get when we are away from the work of life. You see? Rest isn't all, only something that we must have. Rest is intended to be a blessing for us to enjoy. And that tells us and should tell us as Christians that rest is part of the divine design. God intended it to be this way. And we know this, of course, from the Ten Commandments as we see projected here from Exodus chapter 20. 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your maidservant or your female servant. I love this next one. Even your livestock or your livestock or the sojourner who is in your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Now, we have the seventh day of rest, not because God needed to rest, He's inexhaustible, but He made this day of rest because He knew that we needed to rest. He made this day of rest because He wanted to bless you and bless me with the opportunity to rest. Now, fast forward to the time of Jesus. And Jesus at that time was in conflict with the Pharisees, the really religious people. And the really religious people had made a set of very strict, detailed stipulations, rules and regulations of exactly how you were supposed to observe the day of rest. In fact, it's recorded that there were 39 of these stipulations about what you could do and about what you could not do on the day of rest, lest you break the fourth commandment. I'll give you just one example. It was called the Sabbath day's journey. A Sabbath day's journey was approximately three-quarters of a mile. And what it meant is as long as you stayed within your house, the steps didn't count. You could walk all over your house. You could do whatever you wanted. You could get on your peloton. Didn't matter what it was. You stay in your house, it doesn't count. But the moment you step outside of your house, the meter starts clicking towards that three-quarters of a mile. Now, let me tell you a story that fast-forwards to present-day time. I was pastor of a church in western Pennsylvania outside of Pittsburgh, and there was a suburb of Pittsburgh called Squirrel Hill. Squirrel Hill was and is the Orthodox Jewish center of the Pittsburgh area. Many, many Orthodox Jews living there. But there's a problem. The problem is that Squirrel Hill was much larger than three-quarters of a mile across. And the Orthodox Jews and other Jews wanted to be able to move wherever they possibly could on the Sabbath day. So what were they going to do? Well, PP&L, Pittsburgh Power and Light, got a call from the rabbis in Squirrel Hill asking to meet with them. And the rabbi said to PP&L, and it happened that, that the, an elder in a previous church was on this particular group committee at the time, they made this interesting request. Can we affix a mezuzah to each one of the light posts around the perimeter of Squirrel Hill? And you scratch your head and say, what? What's that all about? Well, the thing that marked the perimeter of your house were mezuzahs. They put them on the doorpost. So if you went beyond the mezuzah, you were outside, the meter started clicking. You stay inside the mezuzah, doesn't count. And what the rabbis decided was that Squirrel Hill was the house of Orthodox Judaism within Western Pennsylvania. And therefore, they put mezuzahs around each of the light posts at the perimeter of Squirrel Hill and declared that if you wandered anywhere within the house of Squirrel Hill, none of those steps counted towards the Sabbath day's journey. Now, I give you that illustration simply for us to realize the lengths to which we as humans will go to making rules and interpreting rules and massaging rules for our own ends. 
Now, you go back again to the time of Jesus, and at that time, the Pharisees were the equivalent of those rabbis in Squirrel Hills. They were the ones who made the decisions, made the evaluations of what counts towards the Sabbath day journey and what does not count as a Sabbath day's journey. We might call the Pharisees the day of rest law enforcement officers of the first century. And they were vigilant to watch for offenders. Enter Jesus. And to the Pharisees, Jesus is nothing but an upstart, charismatic personality from the north in Galilee. He's got no official training. He's got no degrees that are coming from the teachers of the law down in Jerusalem. He hasn't been vetted. They haven't done any gatekeeping with him. And there are great crowds of people following this itinerant preacher, teacher, charismatic figure all throughout the northern part of the country. And this is making them very nervous about Jesus. And Jesus actually has begun to teach on the subject of rest. He has spoken about his position on what constitutes rest. In fact, Pastor Eric preached on this passage last week. It precedes the one we're looking at today. What does Jesus say so famously? We love this passage, don't we? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." The religious officials, the really religious Pharisees hear this, and this is not the message that they are wanting to be sending to the great crowd of people. They're wanting to send the message of saying, keep the detailed rules and regulations. Take upon you not only the yoke of the law, but the yoke of all the extra laws. We're going to pile on top of the yoke of the law so that you do not break the fourth commandment. You must maintain our 39 set of stipulations. And Jesus, can you see the difference here? Jesus audaciously is saying, no, no, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm humble and gentle in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, not in all that other stuff over there, but you're going to find rest for your souls when you find it in me. These two positions are on a collision course with one another. And I think that why Matthew puts these two stories where he does in the Gospel of Matthew is that he is showing us where the collision occurs through two episodes. So, you know, uh, probably you guys are like me, but you know, you see a collision. Don't you just kind of have the, the, the gapers delay? You kind of want to turn and look <laughs> at the collision, right? Well, we're going to take a minute and look at the collision between Jesus and the religious leaders in these two stories. They both have to do with the Sabbath day, which is the day of rest. You see, the theme's the same. Jesus has just taught about rest, and we have two stories about the day of rest rest. So, Jesus and His disciples are walking through a field. Disciples hungry, disciples take some grain, rub it in their fingers, and eat. And of course, the day of rest law enforcement agents are watching Jesus to see what's going on here. And immediately they see this and they cry, foul, foul, 
unlawful, unlawful. Jesus, get your guys under control because they are reaping on the Sabbath day. They, they are taking opportunity on the Sabbath day not only to reap, but also to go ahead and mill and put it into proper form to eat. And you are breaking some of our 39 laws about how you must keep the Sabbath day. They're calling out Jesus, aren't they? Absolutely. Now, Jesus, we just read in chapter 11, is gentle and humble of heart and spirit. But I tell you this, when it comes to a matter of principle and truth, Jesus indeed gives no quarter and takes no quarter from the religious leaders. Because this is what he does with them. He says in verse 3, have you not read in your Old Testament or in your, in your Torah that how it was the case that, uh, should I say the Tanakh, technically that's another deal, but how it's written that David and his fellows, they were hungry too and they went and took the very bread of presents from the temple and they ate of it and they weren't guilty. And haven't you read also how the priests every single week whenever they perform the duties in the temple break the law of the Sabbath and they're not guilty? Oh, and by the way, you should go and read Hosea 6.6 and understand what it means when it says, I desire from you to have mercy, not sacrifice. Three times Jesus calls them out concerning what? What Scripture teaches. And I am here to tell you, and you probably know it, if you want to get a modern-day Pharisee or an ancient Pharisee ticked off at you, you challenge them on their Bible knowledge and Bible interpretation, and they will get angry at you very, very quickly. And such was the case with Jesus in our first episode. But Jesus nevertheless concludes and says, look, David and his men were not guilty. The priests do their, their exercises and do the leading of worship on the Lord's Day, and they are, excuse me, the Sabbath day, and they're not guilty. And my men aren't guilty either. And if you understood what Scripture really means about mercy, you would have understood that instead of accusing them. Do you see the collision that has just occurred in this story? Well, there's a second collision. Let's look at it quickly as well. Jesus goes to the synagogue. There sits a man with a shriveled hand. And the day of rest, law enforcement officers perhaps have even planted him here. You notice in the passage it says they are looking to accuse him. Many good reputable scholars say, well, maybe it's a coincidence he was just sitting there with his shriveled hand, but maybe not so much a coincidence. And so they innocently, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day, the day of rest? And the answer is complicated because on one hand, it is legal to heal on the Sabbath day if the person's life is in danger. On the other hand, it is not legal to heal on the Sabbath day if there is no imminent danger. Man with shriveled hand, no imminent danger. If Jesus heals him, he is breaking the rules and the laws and is a Sabbath day offender. Now, once again, I want us to see something of the personality and character of Jesus. What would have been the, the low, take down the, the heat out of the room, make things calm and cool and collected, do the politically correct move right now? What could have Jesus done? He could have simply said, okay, listen, sorry about your hand. Come back tomorrow and I'll take care of it. Does Jesus do that? No. No. 
Because Jesus Christ, who is indeed so often gentle, meek, and mild, turns into the lion of the tribe of Judah when it comes to matters of truth and principle. And so he's not going to stand for it. Instead, he looks at the Pharisees and says, which one of you knuckleheads, well, maybe he didn't say knuckleheads, but he could have, which one of you knuckleheads, if you have a sheep that falls into a pit, will not pull the sheep out of the pit on the day of rest? Implied answer? They all will do that, right? And yet here sits a son of Abraham. Here sits a man who is made in the very image of God. Here sits a member of your synagogue community, and you're going to use this man and his shriveled hand as a tool in your agenda to take me down? Is that what you guys are made out of? You can see indeed, Jesus calls out their hypocrisy. And I know this isn't even specific to, to exactly where we'll go next with the passage, but it's, to me it's just too delicious to not let you see this. They're trying to get Jesus because they want to see him do a work of healing this man if he dares. And what does Jesus do? He simply says to the guy, hold out your hand. And the guy holds out his hand and is already healed. <laughs> I would subject, suggest to you that if the Pharisees tried to convict Jesus of healing on the Sabbath day, they would have no evidence because Jesus did what? He didn't do anything. He didn't rub the hand. He didn't put oil. He didn't speak into the hand. He just said, hold up your hand, and it's already healed because Jesus can heal on the Sabbath day even without doing any work. And these guys are hot. Because the passage ends by saying what? They went out and they conspired together about how they would destroy Jesus. And the word isn't just punish Jesus or kill Jesus. Apollyomy means to destroy something. They want to destroy Jesus. So let's bring this home a little more closely. What's the difference in approach between these religious leaders and Jesus? We find it in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, where Jesus says in the same context, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We see, don't we? I think we see it clearly. The religious teachers of the law and the Pharisees were all about the Sabbath day being a situation where man was made for it. We must keep the laws. We must keep the laws that are around the laws and the laws upon the laws. That's what we do on the Sabbath day. And for that reason, Jesus in Matthew 23, 4 will say, they tie heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. And they won't lift a finger to help them. We see it now, don't we? The yoke of the Pharisees is hard, and the burden of the Pharisees is heavy. And the people who need rest are getting no rest. And the people who are to receive the blessing of rest are just working to make sure they're not working. Jesus instead flips the script on the Pharisees by saying, the Sabbath is made for man. And Jesus indeed, as the Pharisees are saying to, to him, I'm sorry, disciples, you're hungry, but you're just going to have to be hungry today because you can't break these laws on the Sabbath day. And Jesus turns to them and says, no, my word of rest is a word of mercy. And my word of rest is my disciples and followers have the right to do this because I'm the son of man 
and I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And in the second story, Jesus looks at them and they say, no, you cannot do good if it's going to break the Sabbath day commandment or the way we're interpreting the Sabbath day commandment. And Jesus looks and says, I've got a better principle for you. It's, it's right to do what's good on the day of rest. It's always right to do what's good in the eyes of God on the day of rest. So let's apply this to our life. The application is the word of mercy. And I would say to us that the difference between the heavy yoke of the Pharisees and the light yoke of Jesus is that Jesus' yoke is a yoke of mercy. That's the yoke that he would put upon our shoulders, the yoke of mercy. And you know, I love the fact that Chris quoted for us in our confession of sin, the parable of the prodigal son. I won't repeat it to you. Chris already took care of that piece of what I could say in this sermon. But let me simply emphasize that after the son realizes that he comes to his senses and and is coming home and he turns and starts walking down the lane toward the house, what happens? The father gets up and runs to him and hugs him and kisses him and puts the robe around him, kills the slaughtered calf. The son of mine was dead. He's now alive. And I would say to you, metaphorically, that mercy came running to that, that young man that day. And mercy hugged that man, young man that day. It was mercy that put the robe around him. It was mercy that slaughtered the, the calf for him. It was mercy that said, you were dead, son, but I want you alive and I want you home and I want you in my life. That entire parable is all about the mercy of God reaching into the lives either of the lost or the found who have found themselves lost again because of their own folly. It's a parable all about mercy. And friends, I would say to us today that that our Christian life is to, to be marked by mercy. Your life is to be marked by the very mercy of God in your soul. Mercy came running to you the, the day that you called on his name for the first time and you were embraced by the mercy of God. But we know the mercy of God isn't just for the beginning of our Christian life. The mercy of God is every day of your life. And what I would say to us today is as we learn really to embrace the fact that we're objects of God's mercy every single moment of our lives. You're an object of God's mercy as you are sitting here right now this minute. And to the degree that we really embrace and know that our life is covered and filled with the mercy of Jesus Christ what do we find? Our yoke gets easier and our burden gets lighter. So that's the first application for our lives. Embrace today the mercy of Jesus in your life. Don't fall prey to the temptation to go back to the 39 articles of the Pharisees that are trying to keep all the rules and regulations in order to be good enough to offer God a proper sacrifice. It's, it's a dead end and it's a blind alley. Run right back into mercy every time you're tempted to do that. The second thing, of course, is Jesus' principle about doing good, about goodness being part of his rest agenda. You know, Ephesians 2.10 says that we were created in Christ Jesus uh, for good works that he prepared for us to do in advance. And we're to live into the good works that he has prepared for each one of us in advance. Let me set it theologically for us. We go back to the Garden of Eden story, and in the beginning, on the days of creation, God, after the end of each day, he says what? He saw that it was 
good. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. Come to the end of all the creation, especially the creation of human beings in the image of God, and he says it is very good. Do you know that we were created in the beginning for goodness? That's what we were made for. You were made for goodness. And I think we all know at the end of the story, when Christ comes again and institutes his new heavens and new earth, will there be any evil there? Will there be any mourning, any crying, any destitution, any pain? Will there be any evil in the new heavens and new earth? Most assuredly, there will not, because it will be good for all eternity. So what I want us to see today is that that you came from good, and you are destined for good. And so how now should we live in between those two destinies, or or the, the, the one on the one and the destiny to come? What are we to be living right here and now? We're to be living after the good things of God, the good things that He has done and prepared for us in advance. Because Jesus says it's always good to do good, even on the day of rest. And I would say to you that it implies that when we live into the good that God has to us, what do we find? Rest. We find rest. There's rest in the good things of God as they are applied to our lives. You know, uh, it's been a long time ago, and I hate to reference this, but I'm the old guy on the staff now. Many decades ago, Billy Joel wrote a song. Some of you will remember this one. He said, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Sinners have much more fun, and only the good die young. And we, as we sit here today, have to beg to differ with Billy Joel Yeah, they may laugh for a while. Yes, they may have some fun for a while. But do they have rest for their souls? No. No, the sinner will never find rest for his soul. The sinner will never find rest for her soul. It just can't happen. But only as we come to Jesus and take his yoke upon us, the yoke of goodness, do we find the rest of God. So, friends, that's the rest of the story. The rest of the first story is the rest of the mercy of God that He extends to you and me in Jesus Christ every single day of our lives. Take it today and find His rest. And the rest that Jesus offers to us in the second story is the rest of living into the good things of God, because there we too will find rest for our souls. That is the rest of the stories, and it's intended to be the rest of your story too.